Right, good morning. Okay. Today we are looking at um, we are looking at Gospel of Mark, continue our series. We're looking at chapter three, and we're getting to the point where we need to know what the core of Jesus' ministry is. Jesus, uh, well, C.S. Lewis talks about um, the uniqueness of Christianity, and he describes it as grace. This idea of grace. And the idea of grace, at the core of grace, is forgiveness. And that's what we're going to be talking about. Jesus preaches about repentance and baptism. And if we repent and there is no forgiveness, then there is no point in repenting at all. So forgiveness is at the core of the Christian message. Paul keeps on going on about the free gift of grace. This free gift of forgiveness. He keeps on talking about it and it seems that he's obsessed with it. And no surprise given what he's been forgiven. The great sins that he has been forgiven. Now, I wonder whether you can think about the last time you had to forgive someone. It may have been something that was very hurtful. Usually is if you you can remember it as something where you have to forgive somebody. They've come to you and asked for forgiveness. There is some reconciliation there. But I wonder whether you can think of something that might have happened or some sin or betrayal that you cannot forgive. I know I don't want to dig up old wounds. It might be something that's incredibly painful or it might have been something that's happened to a friend of yours. Is there something that you think cannot be forgiven is it some violence or maybe if you watch any TV dramas nowadays probably adultery is something it's not something to joke about it's taken very seriously murder or some deep betrayal of trust well we're going to be looking at that as well uh, following in Craig's footsteps, Eric has given me all the, all the fun chapters. Today, um, I'm going to be speaking on the sin that cannot be forgiven that Jesus talks about in chapter 3. If you're unsure about this still at the end of the, uh, at the, end of the sermon, then Eric is here to answer all your questions. No, I, I cannot I continue to talk about it a little bit. Um, do come and talk to me about it. Or uh, Eric... Um, But uh, before we delve into the chapter, let's pray. Father, we pray that you are, um, that your Holy Spirit is here, as you promised, opening our hearts and minds and revealing all truth to us. Lord, we know that these are difficult teachings. Uh, These are controversial subjects. This is... um, um, something that is hard to grasp and we pray that you are teaching us and molding us to become more like you and in the image that you uh, of you as you made us in jesus name amen okay so we're going to look at mark chapter 3 reading from verse 3 all the way to 30 uh, chapter uh, sorry verse 30 so reading from verse 3 to verse 30. 
sorry, from verse 1, sorry. Again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so they might accuse him. And he said to the man with a withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save, a li to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Jesus withdrew with, with his disciples to the sea and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Edomia and from beyond the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all he, that he had, was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all, those who, uh, all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And when, whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to those whom he, de he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the, son, uh, the brother of James, to whom, he, uh, to whom he gave the name Borneges, that is, sons of thunder. Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that he could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they, they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed of Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he calls them to, called them to him and said to them in, parable, uh, in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may enter, uh, plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins have been, uh, will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never, uh, never have forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. So do keep that uh, passage open, Mark, Mark chapter 3. Um, if you, you know, and follow what I'm, I'm saying and make sure that uh, what I'm saying is accurate to what is said here. 
and uh, please do ask. It's, it's quite a long passage, so there are lots of little bits in here that uh, I won't cover, um, but to maybe grab someone afterwards if you if you got any questions. Okay, so we see at the start of the chapter that Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath. We actually see this miracle expanded more thoroughly and Jesus' reasoning behind uh, the idea of healing on the Sabbath more clearly in the other Gospels. So uh, I would refer to those, so I'm not going to dwell on that now. But he sets up what he's doing here, what Mark is doing here, is he's setting up the opposition that the Pharisees will... um, have to Jesus, uh, which will play a more important role, you can see, even in this chapter. Something that, uh, so, but the, uh, the Pharisees, sealing this, sorry, seeing this healing, which is obviously a good thing, something that can only come from God, start to set themselves against him, just because he breaks one of their rules, or Perceive, it's perceived that he breaks one of the rules of the Bible. They don't go to correct him. They don't go to tell him, no, that's not what, what, what we do here. They let him, they try and trap him here. And then they immediately go out to plan to destroy him. And we understand from the context that that means that they want to kill him. Such a great thing that he has done, this healing, this restoring of this man's life, because this man wouldn't have had a life with this withered hand. No one would have employed him. He wouldn't have been able to do any uh, manual labor. This is restoring a life in first century century Israel. But they go and they want to kill him. We then see, as I uh, expanded on in chapter 2, the problem with Jesus um, and his healing ministry. Jesus has now become so famous. People have come from all over uh, Judea and Israel and outside uh, Tyre and Sidon to demand his healing skills so that he is unable to eat, so that he is afraid for his life. He asked the disciples to bring around a boat so that he can avoid the crush. He is unable to go into a town. He is unable to go into synagogues because he will be mobbed. Even last week in chapter 3, we see that friends of the paralytic man were so desperate to see Jesus and to bring their friend to Jesus that they break through somebody else's roof. Now... You might love the idea of a celebrity coming around your house. You might love the publicity, yeah, the, the, the Instagram followers that you will get, the, yeah, the fame that you will get. But would you really want somebody who everyone is going to break down your house, break open your roof to get into the house for that? Jesus might have struggled to get people to stay if, if they, they knew about this story. As I said in chapter, uh, in chapter 2, Jesus' healing was a good thing. It was a miracle that pointed to the validity of Jesus' ministry. It confirmed that he was, uh, uh, he was, uh, his ministry was blessed by God. But it also hindered him from teaching and preaching the gospel. And this was the tension that uh, we saw in chapter 2 where Jesus 
had to go and pray, had to desperately seek the wisdom of God. And more important than healing was this idea of repent and be baptized. And we see in, uh, see in chapter, uh, chapter 2 uh, this, this idea that forgiveness of sins is even more important than healing this man. So what's going on uh, a little bit further? We, go, we see that Jesus is uh, casting out demons. And we see then that Jesus asks them to be quiet. Again, we're wondering, what, what is this? I mean, he's already famous. We already see the crowds crushing on him. What is going on in verse 11 and 12? Well, the commentators, uh, commentaries uh, say that this harks back to uh, the ancient belief that if you have the name of a demon, then you have power over them. It's why we have the story of Rumpelstiltskin so if you, once you, uh, the princess finds out the name of Rumpelstiltskin, he throws a bit of a fit and runs away and drives him off. The demons here are calling out Jesus' name or his title, the true, his true nature as son of God, because they think that they will have power over him. And we can see that obviously they don't. But Jesus shushes them um, but despite Jesus asking them to shut up, this news would have got out. This news did get out. We saw that in chapter 1. And despite this, even despite this, the Pharisees still want to kill him. It seems ridiculous. If you heard demons calling out Jesus as the Son of God, saw his healing ministry... Wouldn't you want to investigate? Wouldn't you want to hear what he had to say? But no, these people don't want to hear what Jesus has to say. All they're interested is in the superficial ministry. It's, uh, it's an important one. His healing. They're all only interested in his healing. Or they saw him as an enemy, as the Pharisees too. And sadly... The more you stand as a Christian, the more you grow as a Christian, the more you will see this today. Those who only see the beneficial, uh, sorry, the superficial benefits of Christianity. In today's society, yes, we would see those as important. It might be the social status of going to church, maybe the, the social circle that you the re reach in, in church, maybe the respectability of being a Christian. Certainly something that politicians love to draw on. And yet you dig down underneath this, this idea of their calling themselves Christian and you find that it's very shallow. Politicians love to talk about thoughts and prayers. I think just about you know, most of the British politicians, even though Britain is still it, it's starting to become a much more secular society, will still say... They are, they are Christian, or they have a quiet faith, as the former Prime Minister used to say. But get them to stand on any of the Christian fundamental beliefs, and they will fold. Do they stand on any of the, the beliefs that counter, you know, counter the society's beliefs? And you'll find that they'll fold. 
Or do they see Christianity as a threat? Again, you'll see this. I was amazed, actually, in uh, one of the first schools I worked at, that as soon as I joined the staff who were running Bible studies in the Christian Forum, the chaplain started, was, was vehemently opposed to us. It was, you know, it absolutely baffled me. Even before he got to know me, even before he got to talk to me or listen to anything I said, because I was joining the, the staff who were running Bible studies in the Christian Forum, I was his enemy. Let's move on. In the next section, we see the appointment of Jesus' 12 disciples, who later become the apostles. Again, I will point out what simple, terribly flawed men these are. Not the, uh, not the candidates you would choose to start a revolution, not the candidates you would start to choose the greatest religious movement of all time. Certainly not people who you would pick to become the model examples of men who would echo through the ages. And thank God that Jesus chose these men because they are flawed and failed and they're bumbling fools just like you and me. In fact, sometimes I think, I, I, how can Peter say those things? Has he not seen enough evidence enough? And then the next day I go out and do something similar. And then we see the a key section, we come to the key section of this passage that I want to talk about. Jesus refutes those who are saying that he is possessed by Beelzebul. The healing, power, uh, healing and power to cast out demons, they know, would only have come from God. If this was a charlatan who was only pretending to cast out demons, then they would have brought the evidence. It was happening on such a massive scale. There was no one denying this. The Pharisees were not denying the power of his healing. We see that elsewhere, we see the evidence, and um, I talked about this more when I was uh, in my yeah, sermon on Luke 7, where Jesus is walking from, uh, from Jerusalem to Nain, and he meets uh, uh, a, um, a funeral procession going the opposite way, and there are massive crowds on both sides. The whole town would have come out, and Jesus heals this uh, this dead boy. How could he have arranged that? How could he do this in front of everybody? Did this widow just pretend that his, her son was dead? Got the whole town to believe it. Were the people who were holding up the, the dead boy, were they pretending as well? And yet no news came out of this, this, this act, this pretend? No, this happened far too much for, for it to be a pretend. So they knew that this was a genuine power, and yet they were calling him, and this is why they were calling him a servant of Beelzebub, because they knew he had real power. But how could that be? If he's casting out demons. But before we tackle this idea, this teaching about the unforgivable sin, let's have a look at what Jesus says in verse 28 <clears throat> and recognize its importance. 
Truly I say to you, all sins will be, uh, will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they alter, uh, sorry, they utter. As Christians, we must never lose sight of just how important this is. Jesus is not saying everybody's sins will be forgiven, but all the sins can be forgiven. All types of sins have been and will be forgiven. Those sins, those betrayals that you thought of at the start of the sermon, if you've committed them yourself, if you believe that you cannot be forgiven, you're wrong. God says that all sin, the sins of man, of the children of man, can be forgiven or will be forgiven. God has forgiven blasphemers. John Newton, who was the writer of Amazing Grace, the song Amazing Grace, who was a former slaver, he was a, a sailor, former slaver. When he was a sailor, he was known for blasphemy, uh, blasphemy and swearing, as so much so that other sailors would blanch and ask him to stop. That's the testimony about John Newton, and yet he was converted to be a Christian and he wrote Amazing Grace and he was a mentor of uh, William Wilberforce. God forgives murderers. We see the testimony and witness of Nicky Cruz who was a former gangster and a former murderer. He's, he's the, uh, the guy who wrote the book Run Baby Run and is, is currently a minister in, uh, in New York and reaches out to the gangs in New York. We see God forgiving King David, who was a murderer and an adulterer. We see God forgiving the Pharisee Saul, who later becomes the Apostle Paul, who persecuted the church and was instrumental in killing early Christians. We must understand that we have this tension between God's righteous judgment, God who is pure and perfect, who has a righteous judgment, a justified righteous judgment against our rebellion, our sin and rebellion. And this tension between that and a God who of love, who yearns to be in a relationship with us, who longs to bring us back into the fold, into his family. And that tension is only resolved through the death, substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus. So we must remember this is at the heart of Christianity. Jesus says, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. So given all of that, what is this forgivable, unforgivable sin? And I am going to come back to it, but one more thing before I address that. The idea that there is a sin that is unforgivable is a frightening thing. It should frighten us. It should make us appreciate this amazing forgiveness that we have all the more. Also, that we should not take the relationship of God, this relationship of God, lightly. 
It's not something that should be taken uh, lightly or for granted, but held tight. In Philippians 2, Paul talks us about us working out our salvation. This is the, the fact that when we have been given, we have been given salvation. We are promised salvation. We still need to work it out. We need to work out what it means. We can't just go about our daily business. Christianity is not a hobby. It's not a social club. It's not a social status. It's not a mark or a badge of respectability. As I said before, some politicians seem to love that badge of respectability. I'm a Christian. Respect me. It should be seen as central to the way we live our lives and prioritized. We should be working out our salvation, the salvation that we have been given and promised. So back to verse 29. Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying that he has an unclean spirit. You see, these Pharisees and scribes and teachers of the law these were men who should have known that this gift, they did know that this gift that Jesus was displaying could only have come from God. They were presented with the reality and person of Jesus, the reality and person of God. And they not only rejected him, but they actively worked against him. I believe that if you are seriously asking the question, have I committed the unforgivable sin? Could I commit this forgivable sin? Then that's the Holy Spirit in you prompting you to ask that question. And that is not you rejecting the Holy Spirit. If you have met the reality of Lord Je the Lord Jesus and acknowledged who he was or who he is and then rejected him, I believe that you would be incapable of asking that question. And that is the sin that is unforgivable. So there's this question. How do we know? Do we categorize somebody who, uh, who is rejected, who we talk to about Christianity and they reject it? Do we categorize them as having the unforgivable sin? You might be thinking of that passage where Jesus says to his disciples, if they reject you, then wipe the dust off your feet, for they, you know, it's going to be worse for them in hell than Sodom and Gomorrah. Do we reject those people who have rejected us? Well, I don't believe so. I believe that it's those people who have then accepted and know Jesus and then reject him, reject the Holy Spirit, that it is the unforgivable sin. We can't judge whether somebody ever knows or has accepted. So we have to keep praying for these people. If you want to talk to me about this more afterwards, then please do. There are references in 1 John to the Antichrist and um, the sin that leads to death, and I believe that they are... Uh, this is very relevant to that. In C.S. Lewis's book, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, we have a scene where the children are taken to the safe place, the beavers, 
They're given shelter by the beavers. And we hear talk about Aslan for the first time. And me, uh, Mr. Beaver says, Aslan is a lion. The, gra- the, the great lion. Sorry, the lion, the great lion. Ooh, says Susan. I thought he'd be a man. Is he quite safe? I feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, says Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Jesus, God, the Holy Spirit. It's not safe. The creator God. The God who gives us everything. He's not safe. But he is good. He longs to be in a relationship with you. He longs to give you salvation and a promised place in heaven. Truly I say to you, all, the, uh, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. And whatever blasphemies they utter. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that you sent your Son to preach forgiveness, to ask us to repent and be baptized and to give our lives to you. As your Son taught us, forgive us our sins as we are forgiving those who sin against us. Forgive us our sins as we are continuing to forgive those who are sinning against us, not because our forgiveness is dependent on that, but help us and teach us to forgive others as you have forgiven us. Forgiven us terrible (laughs) sins of rebellion and selfishness and betrayal. And Lord, help us to continue to work work out our salvation and try to become more like you. And we pray that you, you hide those, those uh, failings from those we are witnessing to you, but only shine your glory, your goodness through us to them. Not for our glory, but for your glory. Lord, we are failed. Help us to acknowledge that and beg for forgiveness and repent. And help us to live for you. In Jesus' name. Amen.